Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? And I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I am so glad to be with you. Hope that everybody is doing well out there. It, it gets kind of confusing after a long weekend. I seem to get more emails about problems at home. And I have to admit, a man by the name of Eric contacted me, and he said, Hey, Carol, I'm definitely a sex addict, and I'm trying to get as many resources and help as possible, looking for more resources and contacts to support my schedule. I'm military and have a wife and two kids and can't really make evening 12-step meetings can't seem to find a sponsor who will actually answer the phone. I listened to your first podcast, and I need your advice. Well, Eric, here's what I would say to you. Keep listening to the show, because I give a lot of tips and a lot of advice at the beginning of the show, and obviously when we're talking with the experts, I have quite a bit to say myself. In the meantime... You say, I'm trying to get as many resources and help as possible. Well, the first thing I would do is, no matter what book you're reading, I would get the workbook, Facing the Shadows, because you can start to do work in this workbook that will help you to identify what you'd need to do next in your recovery program. And I'm a big believer in Patrick Carnes. You know I was trained by him, and I highly recommend that you get that workbook. Again, for anybody out there listening, it's called Facing the Shadows. It's the number one text that I use with my clients. That, 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 hey, you know what I do recommend is the Recovery Start Kit. And that is a fairly pricey 140 days of getting 
on the bandwagon of recovery. And um, you can contact me at Carol at carolthecoach.com, and I can send you one of these kits. I tend to sell them less expensively than Amazon or um, other places because I really want you to get the help. I'm willing to sell it at my cost. So it's amazing. It's a little over $300, and it will get you going with meditations, with work, with a personal index, um, craziness index that you need to fill out. It helps you to understand about eroticized rage. It is amazing in terms of all the ways that it gets you catapulted into recovery. Now, of course, you said that you don't have time because you have a wife and two kids and you really can't make evening 12-step meetings. Well, you and I both know that more than likely there are meetings at 7 a.m. before you go to work, at noon when you're taking a break, or in the evening. I first and foremost always recommend face-to-face meetings. That's what I do. I think they're by far the most beneficial, and it's where you can really get to know the guys and identify who would make a good sponsor. you got to see that it's a good fit. I'm always amazed when people come in, and I get this, and they go, I don't know how to pick a sponsor. Well, first and foremost, if you're doing 12-step meetings, you need to pick people that you admire, that seem to have good recovery, that you like what they say. And what they say makes sense to you. So that's what I would recommend you do. And I'm sorry that you've had so much trouble. You can't find a sponsor who will actually answer the phone. It sounds like you've tried. Now, I don't know if that means you've asked somebody to be your temporary or regular sponsor. Or if you're just calling guys off the cuff to ask them to be a sponsor. And, and, you know, they don't know who they're getting. They don't know who they're getting. So they don't answer the phone. They want to see who's going to leave a message. And let's face it, there's a lot of people out there, and I'm wondering if this is you, Eric, that you call, but when they don't answer, you hang up. That is not going to get you anywhere. But in the meantime, if you really are in a a city that doesn't offer 12-step meetings face-to-face, then you've got to go to saa-recovery.org and look for telemeetings. And there are plenty of people there that will help to be your sponsor. I've never met anybody who couldn't get a sponsor online. If indeed you really can't get yourself to a few face-to-face meetings a week, and I recommend not just one, but two or three, for the new person who is a sex addict. See, I'm a Rottweiler. I'm not somebody that says this process is easy, but I promise you when you work it, it works. So you invest in the work that you need to do, and you're going to be able to manage this addiction and get to feeling better about yourself. Now, I've got to ask you, have you gone to sexhelp.com? Because sexhelp.com has CSATs. Certified Sexual Addictions Therapists in your zip code, hopefully, that can help you. 
And if you're living in a military town, they probably take TRICARE. If they don't, there are plenty of therapists who do. Now, I just said that, and, and you know, i got to say, a lot of CSETs don't take any kind of insurance, so I shouldn't have said plenty. I take insurance, but the thing is, you can't work with me unless you're going to come to Indianapolis. You know, I do consultation. I see people on Zoom. I see people for consultation with Skype. I do phone coaching. But that is not covered by insurance. And um, so, you know, if you need somebody to just consult with you a couple of times and you're willing to pay cash, I'm your girl. We'll get you to the right people in the right places. But this is not why I do the show. I do the show to educate and inform you and to show you that there are resources, Eric, out there, just especially for you. And if you don't work all these tools, you're probably not going to get the help that you deserve and the help that will make you the best family man. You said you have two kids, and you want to be the kind of guy that can look your wife in the eyes and empathize, reassure, validate, and connect with her. And so I'm hoping that you do the hard work. You've heard me talk about the 10 tools. If you don't know what those 10 tools are, go to YouTube, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Now, I realize there are some parts of the population that listen to me that have blocked YouTube. It might be a gateway for acting out. But then ask your wife to go to YouTube Ask your girlfriend, ask your mother, ask your brother. I don't care who you ask. But say, hey, get me on YouTube and go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And I have their partner and sex addict information. Eight, 10, 12, at most 15-minute clips that can help teach you life skills and, and can assist you in changing your life. And that is my promise to you, too, that... If you work on this diligently, if you read your meditation books, if you pray, if you meditate, if you go to a CSAT, if you get yourself into a sexual addiction group, if you go to 12-step meetings, if you get a sponsor, if you do the 12-step work, if you get filters, if you get um, polygraph tests, if you do everything that helps to hold you accountable, you will learn how to manage this disease I promise you that is my promise to you you know they say therapists should never make promises because they can't guarantee them can keep it but I have never met a man or a woman who has utilized all the tools and not had the life that they deserve and I'm a life coach so I always you know say create the life you deserve and Initially, you have to create it with a lot of hard work. But, again, when you work it, it works. So I'm going to ask you, Eric, you know what you need to do. Now get on it and don't, please don't make excuses. You can do it. I promise you, you can do it. Okay. I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets. I've already given you a little plug about my YouTube. You can go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and 
get some information that you need. Every week I bring you experts in the field that have specific niches that really can make a difference in your life. And tonight I've got Jessica Levis. And she says that she has seen a lot of problematic sexual behaviors that stem from sexualized anger. You know, that kind of philosophy, I hate you and that's so hot. Well, sexualized anger is the fusion of anger and eroticism based on an arousal template laid down early in life. And so Jessica is definitely going to help us to understand, you know, what is the term sexualized anger and how is that different from eroticized rage? Dr. Carnes, Dr. Patrick Carnes talks about eroticized rage. And so she's going to help us know what the difference is. And she has says there's very little written about sexualized anger using kind of a non-forensic lens. But there are many who struggle with insecure attachments and they don't have anywhere really to explore unhealthy pieces of eroticism And she wants you to understand more about that so you can cultivate a healthier and exciting sexuality. Now, Jess is a marriage and family therapist, and she's been trained by the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. We call that SASH. And SASH also trains clinicians to be certified therapists in sexual addiction and sexual problematic behaviors, and so they are another great place to look for therapists who know what they're doing in terms of treating both men, women, and couples struggling with problematic sexual behaviors. Jess also works with emotional dependency, and she is one of us. When I say that, she's an APSAT. She is a certified um, clinician who works with partner trauma, and she is a specialist with partners. So as you can see, she's kind of, well, she has been able to address these issues from all perspectives. That makes her really well-rounded. And she travels around the country providing lectures on affect regulation. You know, those are your feelings. What do you do when you can't manage your anger or your sadness or your depression, your fears? And she is working on attachment issues. She writes articles. And you can visit her website at www.east-baytherapy.com. So I really want to welcome Jess to the show because she's got an exciting um, topic for us tonight, one that we don't talk about often. So Jess, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. <laughs> How are you doing? I, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. That was quite an intro. I, that's going to be hard to live up to. Oh, come on. I know who you are. I know what you do. And this is going to be easy. And I know our listening audience has some confusion about all this because they don't understand eroticized rage. They definitely don't understand how that is different from sexualized anger. And so can you talk a little bit about the difference between sexualized anger and eroticized rage? Sure. So I use the phrase sexualized anger instead um, of what 
many are familiar with the term eroticized race because reading the research on this and um, specifically Patrick Kearns, Dr. Patrick Kearns came out with this article in 2013 on eroticized rage. Um, and in the clinical examples, there seem to be many different types and degrees of anger um, as well as trauma discussed. And the term eroticized rage kept bringing up this idea of a perpetrator, you know, someone deeply, deeply pathological, while some of the examples given seem to be a different kind of anger or uh, if not perhaps anger at all or rather just a trauma that was being relived. So I found sexualized anger to be more inclusive of the whole spectrum of anger instead of just this, this um, end of the spectrum of rage. Okay, and so the normal sex addict who may feel an, a lot of sexualized anger, what do they look like? What are some of the behaviors? And when do you know that you're working with somebody that you need to explore this concept? So um, I would say, you know, this could show up in in sex addicts. It can also show up in other problematic sexual behaviors. Um, I think that um, I really start looking at this as an issue when either it's brought to my attention by the client themselves when it's become dystonic, meaning it's in line with what their morals and values are, because I Mm -hmm. keep in mind that there is a wide, wide range of healthy sexuality. And, um, you know, I think that people can sexualize anger in a healthy way during role play, you know, just like they can sexualize other emotions, happiness, sadness, you know. Um, So I really go with what the client is presenting to me and reporting. Is it impairing their social, emotional, occupational functioning? Are they in legal trouble? You know, um, are they, you know, I mean, really, I try to follow the client's lead on this. And I don't treat offenders. That's a whole separate, um, that's a whole separate realm. Absolutely. So, again, what I hear you saying um, is that couples make it together and there is, um aggressive behavior or rough behavior or some anger demonstrated in sexuality, and that is not necessarily problematic. It is problematic if, for example, you've got a couple coming together and there's a lot of um, anger and, um, you know, just unaddressed lying beneath the surface and one of the partners is not okay with this, you know. If if it's consensual and they're both agreeing to having, you know, almost an excitement about, like, role-playing anger and getting to know each other, that's different. That's, that's see anything inherently wrong with that. I, you know, I think if one of the people is being hurt and not okay with the situation, then there, there's a problem. Okay. And I would agree with you 100%. We as clinicians, you and I both believe this, we're not here to pathologize sexual behavior that's mutual, that is erotic, um, regardless of how we 
feel about that stuff? I mean, clearly, if somebody is role-playing bondage, that is not necessarily a problem. There may be people that are offended by that, but if it's between two consensual adults, that is for them to deal with, not us. And we don't necessarily see that as bad. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. And I would say that, you know, it may be just part of their love map, you know, or what they find arousing. Um, And that uh, just because something is in your love map doesn't mean it's there for a bad reason or that, you know, it can't be a healthy sexual thing. Um, So, yeah. So then again, when you hear the term sexualized anger, Give us some examples of what that looks like. Okay. Uh, Let's see. So um, I work with some women in um, the entertainment field, um, and they are dancers, and they they dance for money, and they take off their clothes, and – Some of the women that I work with have absolutely no problem with this, totally empowered by it and make their money and everything is fine, you know. Um, And then I have other women that during their dancing, they find a lot of power um, over the clients and they also find that – it, it doesn't feel healthy to them, like this amount of power, just wanting power over another human being while they're dancing and knowing that they have control, it bothers them. And then it also leads to them, um, you know, maybe um, engaging in another addiction like drinking to increase the acting out sexually. You know, it's just this idea of you're having a sexuality and it's, it's involving a power play Um, where they're not feeling good about it. Got that. And so, you know, let's let's use that same example. If if that woman is into rough sex, is that Mm -hmm. pathological? If the woman is into rough sex and she is totally on board with it and there is another consenting adult, who's totally on board with it, see anything inherently wrong with that. I think that that can be a wonderful, healthy, form, fun form of sexuality. I also think that in the example I gave, what was happening was the behavior that the woman is doing is dystonic. Something about that behavior is going against her, inter- her internal moral compass. So somewhere in it's not sitting well with her, this idea that she is, taking off her clothes for money and having so much power perceived over the men that she's dancing for. That's the difference. So if you were to have a partner engaging in rough sex or bondage and they are fine with it, then there's nothing wrong with it. But if they're doing it and they're doing it to relive a trauma that they are not okay with and that they're getting re-traumatized every single time they do it, that must be a problem. And that would be when they come in and say, hey, I want to talk about this. Got it. And so, in you know, as with most things, if issues are not a problem for you 
And if it's mutual, and if it's mutually enjoyable, and on some level meets an arousal template, and I do, I have a lot of men and women, especially women that do like rough, rough sex, that is that is their arousal template, and they don't really do very well with um, loving, intimate sex. Right. For them, loving, intimate sex is rough sex. Mm-hmm. And you're yeah, really saying mm-hmm. we shouldn't pathologize them. If they're comfortable with that, we should allow yeah, that to be part of their relationship. I would say, you know, Unless they're, yeah, unless a woman is coming to me, if she is truly okay with having rough sex and and finding and that her wires are crossed somehow and that the um, loving, slow, intimate sex is actually traumatizing for her and she's okay with that, then fine. Now, if she has a problem with that and she wonders why she can't have this and it makes her sad, that she is missing out on this other piece. I mean, she could still keep the bondage, but she might be missing out on a piece here that she wants. Now, if she's missing out on a piece and she comes to me and says, I really want to have slow, intimate, soft sex, but I'm terrified of it, then that is a challenge, you know? Like that's, that's something to work on and process for a full healthy sex, just for a full sexuality. And I also want to be clear that, you know, when people have rough sex and, you know, if you're into bondage, uh, bondage um, it's really important to make, like, to make sure you're not intruding on other, someone else's boundaries, physical, emotional, um, spiritual, acting out, you know. Um, that's the problem if you're doing that. Absolutely. So now how did you get involved in, you know, the sexualized anger topic? Um, I got involved with it because um, I was doing a, a separate lecture, and um, and then I was asked to just check out this topic, sexualized anger and eroticized rage, and I didn't find a lot of information. Um, I found I found a lot more actually written um, on sexualized anger than on eroticized rage, and I find sexualized anger to be more of a um, a term that I'm comfortable with because it's more of an umbrella term where eroticized uh-huh. rage would be under the umbrella because it's one piece of it. Um, uh-huh. I just find it, I find it really fascinating because I find that um, a lot of times people are very, um, they're very quick to shut down anything that is, has any tinge of anger or violence in sexuality. Um, it, it's, incredibly um, taboo, you know, and very quickly gets pathologized and very quickly, you know, um, gets specifically, oh, well, it must be sexual addiction, you know. Um, and and I, I absolutely believe in sexual addiction, and I believe that people really, really struggle with it. And, um, and I also think that there are problematic sexual behaviors that aren't addictive, that it's not an addiction. So I, I'm somewhere in the middle in that school of thought that is deeply, deeply split at this point where, you know, some people believe there's no such thing as sexual addiction and others think that almost every problematic sexual behavior is somehow based in addiction. Absolutely. 
And so you realized that a lot of people had misconceptions about it, and you decided that you wanted to talk more about it and educate others. So can you tell us what do you believe causes that fusion between anger and sex? Um, okay, so let's let me. I wanted to give you what was in my notes, so I'm gonna look. I'm trying to catch up here. Um, all right. So when I was reading Patrick Carnes' article, he really has a like a bunch of wonderful um, points that he makes in this article, and it, it it is kind of the go-to article for eroticized rage. Um, so the, he says that there are three things that cause this fusion, this eroticized rage fusion. And the first is that anger occurs in high risk and or frequent situations. So, so anger, just like fear, adds a neurochemical intensity to sexual experiences, and that heightens it. Um, and that can, um, that can begin to uh, fuse anger and sex. Um, another thing is... is that is, anger is central to the scenarios and the belief system in the arousal template. So what arouses someone um, with sexualized anger or eroticized rage in that current moment is actually drawing momentum from historical experiences. So I give an example of um, an adult male I worked with that was a child, maybe 11 years old, and he was watching cartoons downstairs, and he would hear his mom upstairs having really rough, um, scary, abusive sex. And um, it actually, she was getting abused at the time. And so this, this child is sitting there and he's watching cartoons and he's really scared. Um, and this is what he reported to me as an adult. And what he discovered was that if he masturbated and had an orgasm, it would actually calm him down. And so in that moment, um, he has fused. Uh, for the first time, orgasm, um, and the the relaxation that comes around that, and this idea of really abusive sex, um, and so you know, not to be surprised, when he came in to see me, he could not become aroused unless he was either watching violent porn or having violent sex. Right, because he had actually formed his arousal template because it infused this um, predisposition of painful, rough um, abuse and sex with his masturbatory need to kind of medicate and self-soothe him. Yes. And so um, um, I, I do want to touch on that third thing that Patrick Carnes talked about, which is um, infusing anger and sex, is that anger acts as a, ste- a sexual stimulus or a boost. Um, and he talks, um, he talks about it having, it, doing this in four different ways or general profiles. So these would be like, these are the different general profiles of how people get the boost from their angry sex or their um, sexualized anger. The first is power and restoration. So he talks about having, um, it's a way of, or an attempt to restore a sense of self, usually that involves some kind of abuse of power. So we're talking about someone that uses money or leverage on others. And you're reenacting this trauma of feeling powerless. And this is the most common profile, Dr. Kern says. And um, 
you're acting out in a way that in which the partner really has no control. Um, this could look like secret affairs or online activity. Um, and so you're trying to restore equality for yourself internally. That's the first profile. Um, and there are four. The second is humiliation, vengeance, and retaliation. They file, uh, it's, it's deep and profound psychological issues here, and its intention is to degrade and humiliate. These are perpetrators, and these are people that I actually do not see because you need very specialized training to work with perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Um, the third one is perversion. Um, now, this is a very loaded word. And um, Carnes talks about it in the, in the very literal definition. He recalls Robert Stoller, who wrote the book on perversion, uh, called Perversion, The Erotic Form of Hatred. Um, and it's, it's this definition of getting pleasure and disapproval. So it's really getting culture back for its control and rigidity. And whatever you feel you're being judged on, you're gonna, you resent this, and you're going to lash out via out-of-the-box behaviors. Now, I really like to throw in again this idea that what one culture sees as quote perverse um, another culture may consider quite reasonable pleasurable or important um, and then the can you give me an example comes- of that just for our listening audience that may not mm-hmm. be able to make that connection uh, yeah I mean what we were talking about uh, bondage you know there are some very um out there forms of bondage that people find quite pleasurable and that, um, you know, they, they consider quite reasonable in the bondage community. But I would say that the average American um, being in the West as we are and being very, um, uh, what do you call it, um, pilgrimish or what? <laughs> right, um, right. You know, we, I, I don't think that they would. Puritanical, would perhaps. That's what I meant. I meant I meant puritanical. Thank you. Um, and uh, and they would not look kindly on that. You know, they would say what? They would really be judgmental, harshly. Um, so that's and I think that some people, because they see such harsh judgment coming from places like the U.S. around sexuality, that they're like they're turning around and they're given a big middle finger. And they're going to, you know, go explore even further. Hmm. Now, let me ask you a controversial question. This is not meant to hijack you in any way. It's just a curiosity that I have. Because obviously in um, adolescent, college, and, oh, well, a lot of young men are gravitating towards pornography, that um, has to do with rape, has to do with bondage, has to do with gang banging, has to do with um, um, sadomasochistic stuff. And mm-hmm. if I understand you correctly, um, we could say that sexualized anger it. It is a byproduct of what is arousing if it's mutually satisfying. And so when people look at that kind of pornography and they do become aroused by it and they do, there is a sense of mastery or control um, and anger, 
do you believe that that kind of pornography can then shape, here we go, adolescents, young uh, adults, college-age students? My fear is that it will and that we could end up having a sexuality. Now, see, I I hope I don't sound puritanical, but that we could end up having a, a sexuality that lacks intimacy and lacks closeness and lacks love. Um, based on the exposure that they're getting through pornography. What's your thoughts on that? Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> uh, that is that is the hot seat, isn't it? Um, so there are so many pieces to that question. Um, one, the, one of the pieces that stuck, stood out for me was um, do, do I think that these rape videos and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the question was, do I think the rape videos, et cetera, um, are okay in general? Was that part of the question? Um, no. Do you think that rape and gangbanging and um, that kind of pornography can become the erotica of the future? Because so many people will become Mm -hmm. desensitized and or Mm -hmm. they will be sensitized Mm -hmm. to that in their own arousal template. Mm -hmm. I think we're in a gigantic human experiment right now um, with the Internet and with porn. And um, I, you know, there are studies that show desensitization around, um, you know, video games and violence. However, um, there's also studies that show that it, it, within the template of that person to become violent or not violent, you know, um, I, I really have, I do not have the, um, the research background to, to answer that with any kind of, um, you know, adequate, I think, <laughs> words. My gut tells me that if you're dealing with a young mind, um, first of all, I do believe in sexual addiction, and I do believe that pornography is a huge piece of sexual addiction um, Mm -hmm. because it is so accessible uh, and because kids so young are getting their hands on it, and people don't typically, you know, the people that I've seen, they don't just start watching gangbangs, and they don't just start watching rapes. They just they start watching regular porn and regular whatever is regular, but you know like just classic, you know, um, hetero or homosexual porn, and whatever they prefer, you know. And so from there, uh, picking up hours, you know, at a time, and then it, you're not getting the same high, so then you're going to harder and harder uh, material. And so that's how that's you that's typically how people that come to see me end up in these sites or in in the hardcore porn. Um, and do I think that it could shape the mind in their template? I mean, if we're it, it would seem logical, you know, that it would impact um, as it's as it's creating this addictive piece that it's that it's on a physiological level level starting to help regulate their system in a way, you know? Right. Um, So 
this is in the most unacademic way, that is my answer. <laughs> you know, well, like, I think you my, hit the nail on the head when you said we don't have research yet to substantiate that. And um, we don't. We do right, have research. And so hopefully we will so that we can yeah. know. Um, yeah. And so I appreciate that very honest answer about that. I, you know, I knew I was kind of, uh, we had not talked about that question, but it is something that I'm worried about only in that, for me, what I know to be true is sexual addiction in and of itself is an intimacy disorder. And so I 100% agree with you that, you know, role play that looks angry or controlling can be erotic, and that in and of itself is not a problem. However, I do believe when people are only able to have sex via those kinds of um, activity, it does not necessarily lend itself to intimacy. Now, you might argue, how do we know? I mean, how do you know that that couple isn't as intimate and loving and caring outside of the bedroom as they need to be. And I guess I'd have to say, yeah, I don't know that. Do you have a feeling either way? Um, I tend to think that a relationship, whether it is, uh, if it's too, if it's too heavy in one area and severely lacking in another, it feels Mm -hmm. unbalanced to me, you know? So, um, I, I would tend to say, again, it would be by the report of the couple, um, but I would, I would question if there is no, um, if there's absolutely no emotional intimacy or there's no, um, um, I, w- I would look at the level of emotional intimacy, you know, because maybe, maybe they genuinely are happy with not having any gentle physical in- intimacy, but maybe emotionally they're also not close, and that could be a challenge. Right, and and I do believe you and I see skewed couples. I mean, I have definitely met couples that like rough sex or like a lot of bondage or like submissive, dominant um, behaviors in their sexuality or play out anger, and they do have problems with emotional intimacy, but that's why they're in our office. You know, we're not looking right. at those kind of couples that don't have that. Right. Um, I would um, – there are so many good writers on um, online pornography um, and sexual addiction. Um, one that comes to my mind is Rob Weiss. Um, mm-hmm. he, he has written um, tons of stuff on online pornography and, um, and its impact on – the system, the nervous system. So, um, yeah, we check that out. Yes, and we've had Rob on the show. He's a good friend of the show, and he is one of the most non-judgmental. Um, mm-hmm. You know, don't take a theory and just plant it on a couple because you're not comfortable with it. Right. And and very open-minded. Fear and and obviously. Clients can really feel like they can bring in issues and they won't get judged. And and unfortunately, that's what a lot of 
clinicians tend to do. They judge. Mm -hmm. So now let me ask you something else. Um, (laughs) Do you believe that sexualized anger is a way that people regulate their moods? Um, I do. Um, I think that it is one way. Um, And um, I was pleasantly surprised to read a really um, awesome quote from Alex Katahakis. She came out with a book of sexual addiction and affect regulation, which is um, emotional regulation, um, I think about a year and a half ago. And so there's this really great quote um, from there that says, uh, acting out sexually means precisely that. The person attempts to regulate feelings, predominantly rage, at the offending gender by unconsciously acting them out in a mime language of sex, with fantasy, ritual, and orgasm being the auto-regulating reward. So what she's saying, essentially, if I may be so bold as to paraphrase her, um, is that uh, unconsciously um, acting out through sex, people are auto-regulating using fantasy, ritual, and orgasm. And so fantasy, ritual, and orgasm help them to act out their sex. And she obviously is an emotion regulation um, specialist. Mm -hmm. And so if I understand you correctly, it is a way to to, um, regulate affect. Yes, it it is one way of uh, people can choose to or, or you know, if they can't choose if they're addicted, if they're addicted, but um, they they are kind of out of control with that. But it is one way to um, calm or soothe. It 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 would be same kind of um, effect as cutting. Yeah, and so let's talk to our listening audience a little bit about that because my experience is that. There are some people that choose to cut for attention. There are other people that choose to cut so that they can feel what internally is going on inside of themselves emotionally and physiologically. And when they cut, they feel the feelings externally. They watch the blood. They feel the pain. And it is congruent with how they feel inside. Now, how would you describe that? I would describe it just the way you did. Um, that I mean I I've worked with cutting Um, I don't specialize um, in cutting but those are exactly that's what I would have said about cutting it's trying to feel what's inside it's trying to show other people what you're feeling or get reflection on what you're feeling by getting other people's responses and it's it's also a numbing just to completely numb out and to not feel at all. Yeah, that's a good point. It also has that op- it can have that opposite effect which does the exact same thing. It helps to regulate emotions. Mhm. Yeah, it goes you go completely flat. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a good comparison because you know, people are finding out more and more about Teens that I actually have a lot of young and middle-aged adults that cut, um, mm-hmm. because again, 
a lot of people have not been taught how to regulate emotions, how to self-soothe, how to acknowledge and validate their emotions, and so they find what I consider maladaptive ways. I do believe cutting is absolutely positively maladaptive. And at the same time, I'm never as worried about the cutting as other professionals, whether that would be a principal, a teacher, a parent, a spouse, because what I know is we just have to figure out another way to bring to the forefront the feelings the person is having and have them acknowledged, validated, and and then find self-soothing, some sort of self-soothing yeah. coping mechanism to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find um, that I think that's going to be one of my next projects. I find cutting really fascinating um, as a, a regulatory thing and why it just has become so much more prevalent. Um, so um, before, I'm hoping to be able to touch, if we can, on this idea of recovering from sexualized anger um, because Absolutely. I find that sometimes <laughs> sometimes Sometimes when I give these talks, I don't give enough about recovery, and then I get feedback of, like, that was so um, depressing, and how am I going to ever get better? Um, okay. So, <laughs> so uh, the, three, the two things that Patrick Carnes actually talked about for recovering sexualized anger would, would be looking at the arousal template, so really picking apart what turns you on. And, um, and at the same time, looking at family of origin issues or trauma and trying to see if you can find connections um, within those. Um, and then I also add this idea of slowing down the nervous system in your affect um, and really getting more, opening your window of tolerance a bit and so that you can slow down the behaviors that you're doing over and over again and See if it really is serving you or if you can find a different way to regulate in those moments. So now, if you would, talk about a patient or a client that you've worked with that you had to do exactly that, help them process and slow it down. Tell me a little bit about their background. Okay. Um, I primarily work with women. So... Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my cases are with women, um, and um, I work a lot with um, I work a, I work a lot with escorts. And so, uh, let's think. Um, what I generally do is I have people. There is this um, exercise called the iceberg exercise from Patrick Carnes, which is a very simple um, exercise where you plot out, you know. Uh, what is your anger and your history of anger and family origin issues of ang around anger. And so you just want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the history and, and the um, patterns of your anger um, and what really sets you off. And then you want to look at, I, I try to do like tandem looking at your arousal template and what really turns you on. And then I literally have them start looking back and forth at these two things and seeing if anything comes up. We just read the list of each one, and then, you know, I provide feedback, reflecting if they have any kind of interesting body language happening with anything. Um, and then 
you know, as this is all happening, it, it depends on how fast we can go in these sessions because sometimes people get really worked up. Um, they get really um, activated. Um, and so I have to use grounding techniques, and this would be, you know, the number three tools for slowing down. So this would be teaching grounding techniques and teaching um, how to get back into the window of tolerance so we can process some more. Because once you're out of that window, the front brain goes offline and you can't do any processing. Um, so that's, I mean, that's generally what treatment looks like for someone coming in with specifically sexualized anger. So again, if somebody comes to you and they realize that they're not comfortable with their anger and that they have in some way created a pattern where they um, are acting out their anger via sex, you would do a full assessment and you'd identify, you know, other ways that they might uh, regulate their emotions and then help them to determine is this something that they really want to work on, and then what would you do next? Um, I would probably my I would probably go through an example, let them lead me through an, a recent example or a, history, a historical example of something that stuck out with them, kind of like a, a snapshot. I sometimes um, integrate you know, that snapshot piece of EMDR, um, just like what, where do you feel it in your body and what's happening in that moment um, and having them go back there um, in that moment while also being in the room and then just process, you know, what is it about that one example that's really hurting them, you know, that, that is just tonic with them. Mm-hmm. And again, for our listening audience, when Jess talks about dystonic, it means that it's something that you're doing or experiencing, feeling that doesn't feel congruent with who you are. You know, so a lot of times people will come in, and that is at the source of their pain. Is that they're doing something that they don't like. I know sometimes I'll meet with um, bisexual or homosexual. Um, clients that they say, I don't want to be homosexual. Please help me with this. And, of course, I don't do any kind of aversive therapy, so we explore what is it that you don't like about it, what are you most afraid of, and kind of talk them through that process so that they better understand, you know, how can they either accept it or how can they move around it to some degree and live a happy life. Mhm. Mhm. So now, how can people get more information on sexualized anger? Um, there's some, like I um, said, there's actually some really great articles. If you just Google sexualized anger, um, another writer that comes to mind is Aaron. I think his name is, um, and he's out of New York, I believe. Um, they can go to my site East therapy.com and I have um, I did a lecture for the Center for Healthy Sex um, this year on sexualized anger so they can watch that um, and um, you know you could always buy the book Perversion it's quite, it's, it's quite a good read 
Okay, and so if they go to your website, and again, that is www.east-baytherapy.com, and you said you have what available to people? There is a video on there that they can click on, which is a lecture that I provided for the Center for Healthy Sex, which is out of Los Angeles, and it's Mm -hmm. a video, a free video, and they can just watch it. It's about an hour. Fantastic. There you go. So if if we have, um, if our listening audience is is wondering if they understand this concept and they feel like they may have sexualized anger and they're not particularly comfortable with it, you can go again to www.east-baytherapy.com and listen to Jess talk about this um really important subject and you did it for the Center for Healthy Sex and and um it was really well attended, wasn't it? Uh I I I don't know. I think I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna toot a horn. <laughs> All right. Well I had talked with Alex and she was really pleased with the subject matter and the inquiry she got. So there you go, I'm plugging you. Um and how can how can my my listeners contact you if they want more information about your work and especially your work with women? Mhm. Yeah. So you go to that same place, east um, east-baytherapy.com, and, and you can just fill out a consultation form, and um, I will get back with you within 24 hours. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I know that this is a topic that not a lot of therapists know much about. And the only thing that we've been trained as CSATs is to understand about eroticized rage. And obviously, sexualized anger is very different. So I'm so happy that you shared the differences between both. I love that you don't pathologize it. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about the talks that you give, the articles that you write, and that book that's probably rumbling around in your head right now. (laughs) One day. (laughs) All right. Well, Jess, thank you so much, and I really appreciate your expertise, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. All right. You have a great week. Okay, bye. Bye. So, again, that was Jess Leveth, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapy um, trained by the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. Um, And she obviously is a CSAT. She is an APSAT. She works with... uh, partner trauma, and she has just made it her own, and I really admire uh, someone who wants to be there for you when there are uncomfortable topics that you may um, want a specialist to help you deal with. And so it's the end of the show, and you and I both know that there will only be you, one of you at all times, so i fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself and this is the place where you can get information that you can apply to yourself 
and find out who the experts are in the world to take your life to the next level. So we'll see you next week. Talk to you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.